But the whole time that she sat in that cell uh, while they figured out what charges to bring, she thought of nothing else but her two-year-old daughter, who she'd been with when the police entered her home. And she had no idea where her girls were or what they had found when they came home to the apartment that had been tossed by the police. And she had no idea where they were. This is Voir Dear, Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School, and I'm your host, Skylar Dom. When a parent is arrested, the first thing on their mind is often not the outcome of their criminal case, but rather what's going to happen to their children. Today, I talked to Emma Ketteringham about the intersection of the criminal justice system and the child welfare system. Emma is the managing director of the family defense practice at the Bronx Defenders, which tries to keep families together by representing parents in family court proceedings. She's going to explain to us the ways in which the child protective systems, which are so admirable in their mission, can be so unjust in their execution. Here's our conversation. I thought we could start off by having you... Um, Tell us about a client you've worked with whose story exemplifies the way that a criminal charge can get child protective services involved in the Bronx. I, I have a client story that uh, sticks in my head and has been with me for quite a while and have permission from her to share it. Um, but I, I represented a woman um, who was a mother of five children. Um, she and her family had lived in the Bronx her whole life, she'd actually lived in the home that she'd grown up in um, and lived there as a mother with her children. And she had a daughter who was two, and her children sort of aged in age, in, in age from two to 18. And one afternoon, when her older children had gone off to school, um, my client was with her young daughter, and they were sort of playing with the phone on the bed and just, you know, hanging around together. When there was a loud sort of noise, and suddenly the door was opened, and her apartment was flooded with police officers. Uh, they threw her to the floor um, and basically um, held back her daughter from her um, and conducted a search of the house. And what had happened was um, something that happens way too often in the Bronx. It was a buy-and-bust operation where the police came in to search for evidence of drugs and for, of selling drugs. They searched the home and they found a half joint of marijuana in a jacket pocket that belonged to my client's teenage son. And based on that evidence, they brought my client down to the precinct and booked her for a felony drug sale. Now, it's important to know they did not find any evidence of anyone selling drugs from the home. There was no money recovered. There was no scale recovered. There were no baggies recovered, no quantity of drugs. Just this small marijuana cigarette in the pocket of her teenage son's jacket. And maybe because she had never been arrested before, or maybe because the prosecutor could see that this arrest was not a good arrest, uh, she was released within about 48 hours. Um, no case was brought against her. Um, she was let go. 
But the whole time that she sat in that cell uh, while they figured out what charges to bring, she thought of nothing else but her two-year-old daughter, who she'd been with when the police entered her home. And she had no idea where her girls were or what they had found when they came home to the apartment that had been tossed by the police. And she had no idea where they were. So that obviously, as a mother, consumed her. Mm. Um, the police, maybe because they were frustrated by the fact that this arrest did not stick, went one step further than just bringing my client to the precinct and detaining her and robbing her of her liberty. But they also called Child Protective Services and reported her as a child abuser. And that set into motion the child protection system in New York City. And sorry to interrupt. No, that's okay. When you say child abuser, Mm -hmm. first of all, is that a term of art? Is that, you know, is that a legal term? And what are the grounds for those? In this case, what were the grounds for that allegation? Well, what the police claimed in the report was that as a mother, she had been selling narcotics in the presence of her child and drugs were found in her home. Which, if true might be a reason to notify Child Protective Services, but in this case, in fact, was not actually what was happening in the home. Um, But as a result of that call, it set into motion a series of events that were a much greater nightmare than what she had experienced, um, even through being arrested and being held for 48 hours or so. Um, Because what happened was, The call went into the state central registry, as any call about the maltreatment of children does. And then the call was dispatched to local child protective services, which in New York City is the Administration for Children's Services. And then that started an investigation. My client um, was, when she got home from her apartment after being released from the precinct, was, there was a note under her door by a child protective specialist in New York City. So in New York City, the agency that investigates and prosecutes child maltreatment is the Administration for Children's Services. So this was an ACS caseworker, had left her a note, said, please get in contact with us when you get here. Um, And so she did. And she was invited to go to a meeting with ACS, and they explained to her, and she learned for the first time in 48 hours, that her children had been removed from her care and placed in foster homes. They actually weren't placed in the same foster home. Two of her older daughters were placed in foster care in Brooklyn, and um, her youngest daughter and a son were placed in a home in the Bronx. So they were separated, put in homes, um, and then the next day, the very very next day, uh, didn't even return to their same schools, had to go to different schools that were more convenient for the foster parents. And that's, then they told her that, you know, because of the allegations, they were going to charge her with child neglect and her children would be in foster care and that she should appear in Bronx family court the next day. And that's when I met her. And what are some of the other things that people have, that your clients have had cited as reasons for ACS to get involved. So in this case, it was mm-hmm. a it was a marijuana cigarette that led to a uh, charge of you know, drug sale. Mm-hmm. But what are some other examples of? 
Well, I think that's a really good question because I think a major misconception about these cases that are pending in family court um, about abuse and neglect, a major misconception is that the parents are there before this court because they've abused, abandoned, or hurt a child. That is definitely what one would assume, certainly what I assumed before um, I ever stepped foot in a family court. I believe that this was a court that, um, you know, that if a child was in foster care, they were there because their parent had abused or hurt them in some way. But in fact, the vast majority of the parents we represent are not charged with anything like that. Um, and calls can be made by anybody in New York City um, about what one reasonably believes to be the maltreatment of a child. And what most of these cases are about are about perceived risk of a parent to a child. Not because they've done something awful, but because the circumstances in the home or what the parent is experiencing might pose risk to a child. And what that means is, of course, that there's a lot of subjectivity that gets into whether or not this is or is not posing risk. Um, most of my clients, and I run a practice of uh, 50 parent attorneys and social workers and parent advocates, and the vast, vast majority of the cases that we handle involve allegations of neglect, not abuse. And neglect is defined in New York City as basically a parent's failure to meet a minimum degree of care. And what is the minimum degree of care is subject to much debate and thought of differently um, by every individual. I have my own beliefs about what is adequate parenting and other parents have different beliefs than that. People can reasonably disagree. And what I've found over the years of doing this work that many of the parents I represent are there because they have done something that a parent of privilege might also do, but they become the subject of one of these cases because of the neighborhood where they live. Um, there's vast racial disproportionality in the system, um, but they are there usually because of the material disadvantages of poverty, the despair of poverty, and the hopelessness. So what's an example of something that a you know, person in a mm -hmm more affluent neighborhood of New York City who receives less scrutiny might do on a regular basis with their kids? Well, certainly I think marijuana smoking is a good example of yeah. that. In <laughs> fact, my client who, whose story I just told, she had never used marijuana, was asked by the system to do a drug treatment program, and it was actually quite difficult to find one that she could do because she didn't test positive for marijuana. This is one of those bizarre yeah. scenarios that you yeah. can encounter in these cases. Um, but basically, in her case, she was asked to do a treatment program, take a parenting class, and then her children would be returned to her. It took a very long time for the police officer to finally appear in court and testify that, yes, in fact, he had not seen her sell drugs with her child. So really, all that case ultimately was about was a marijuana cigarette in an adolescent kid's jacket pocket, mm -hmm. which I think can happen in the Upper West Side and Park Slope, Brooklyn, just as easily and readily, maybe actually more easily and readily yeah. than it can happen in the South Bronx. Um, but of course, the circumstances of that situation were overblown. And in that case, I wouldn't fault ACS for having become involved. But it just the way the system works, it took so long just to get a hearing to show that what was claimed to have happened actually hadn't happened. Once ACS saw that that hadn't happened, they withdrew the case. So but it took months. Months, okay. So the, months. the children spent Thanksgiving and Christmas in separate foster homes. And during that time, the older girls 
would come home from middle school. They'd go home to their home and ring the doorbell. And my client would call me and say, can I let them in? They're begging to come up. And I would have to advise her no. That would be defying a court's order that they were in foster care. She had a visitation schedule, and that was the only way she could see her kids. So I, I often tell that client's story because I think it, it really demonstrates how just unintentionally but seriously destructive this approach to these issues can be. Um, but like I said, so that was a case about marijuana in the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. And ima- you know, just imagine that disruption and trauma that occurred as a, as a result of that. Other allegations that we see might be a, a parent who's suffering mental illness. Um, I had another client who um, felt the onset of depression. She had been depressed before in her life as a teen. She knew she had to take it seriously, but she was a single mom and didn't have other family to rely upon. She ended up turning to a member of her church to please take care of her 11-year-old daughter while she went into the hospital and was treated. Um, the hospital stay ended up being much longer than she thought, and her symptoms didn't get better. Um, they tried lots of different medications, but she still felt really depressed. And unfortunately, her friend um, just could no longer take care of her daughter, and so called Child Protective Services for help. Well, the help came in the form of the removal of this child from her mother. Now, at this point, of course, her mother can't care for her. She really is, you know, she's in the hospital, she's getting treatment, treatment that she sought out, treatment that she knew she needed. You imagine a parent of privilege who has the private resources, who has maybe the friends and the family and the social network who can help out during a time like that. Um, I'm a mother myself. I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is sort of a parody of parenting in some ways. Um, it's been made fun of quite a bit by uh, Gawker and other Saturday Night Live, et cetera, about um, sort of the intensive parenting that goes on there. But I've certainly met parents who are depressed and might experience times of depression or times of anxiety, and they have resources. They could never imagine that as a result of that, they might lose custody of their child. And in this case... Um, my client didn't get better in time and her rights were terminated to her daughter forever. And what's interesting about that case is also your point about the friend calling ACS for help. Mm -hmm. And I think when you think, when you hear the Child Protective Services or Administration for Children's Services, you do think, and sometimes parents might think, that this is a place to turn for help in what can be really difficult situations. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that one of the one of the hardest and most challenging things about doing this work is that this is the agency that is there to help families. I don't dispute that. It is. But it's also feared by the families who need it. And it's feared because there is a history of it not working the way it should. Of of cases going on for too long, of kids languishing in foster care when they really could be home, of overreaching by caseworkers and by lawyers of the agency. Um, And what we've seen over the past 10 years is that the true tragedy about this is that it is the agency that should be there to help. But the problem is, is that what they have to offer is not helpful. What they have to offer are parenting classes and anger management because it's sort of based on this model 
that what's going on in these families is some sort of individual flaw of the parent. But that's not always and often not what is that what is truly going on. What families really need help with is housing, income, hope, a healthier and safer neighborhood. Mm-hmm. All of the things that parents of privilege enjoy. Yeah. No parent really raises children all on their own. Um, and it's, and so I think it's really about providing resources and supports to parents in communities. I mean, the South Bronx is the poorest congressional district in the United States. There's more food insecurity there than most nations that people associate with starvation and poverty. This is a neighborhood that needs resources, not parenting classes, and not the judgment of an individual case planner who says they need to learn to love their children. They know how they love their children. They don't need to be encouraged in that way. And I know I'm speaking generally, but I can honestly say that there are very few clients who I've represented who have not um, been very clear that their children are their priority. Um, But the problem is that because in this country, we view poverty as an individual failing, we often intervene in a way that is punitive and punishing. It's very similar to the criminal legal system, right? Where we treat drug dependence, right? As a crime and not as the public interest as the public health issue that it is. Um, So it's sort of like, I think it's that we haven't named the problem correctly, so therefore we approach it in a different way. And you're right to note that I think one of the greatest tragedies of that is that the agency that could actually be very actively empowering and helping and supporting these families is feared by them. My clients tell me that they fear the knock on the door of a caseworker way more than a stop in the frisk by the NYPD. That's the reality in New York City. And that is what the agency needs to listen to, to reform. Um, you mentioned, or we talked about some of the things that parents might do to have their children taken away or ACS get involved, that parents of privilege might do. Mm-hmm. But there's also, it sounds like, a lot of things that parents are, are forced to do with their kids as a result of poverty, or you know, circumstances that they mm-hmm. find themselves in as a result of poverty that no parent of privilege, no choices no parent of privilege would have to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk about some of the ways that simply being poor mm-hmm. gets ACS mm-hmm. involved. Well, a really obvious one is lacking high-quality, safe childcare. You know, if you have to make that decision between going to your appointment with, you know, going to your welfare appointment so that you don't, your whole family doesn't lose your benefits. If you don't show up to your work um, assignment, you could be at risk of losing the benefits that your family relies upon, but your child care provider has pun- has canceled. So you, you take the risk. I'll just go there quickly. I'll be back in no time. You know, my child, maybe there's a 10-year-old and a 4-year-old. I mean, those are decisions that no parents should have to make. That's certainly, I don't think, what was intended. I, I think it is an unintended consequence of, of the requirements we put on people um, who are poor. But that is a very real scenario that we have many cases that are based on that exact scenario. A parent makes that tricky choice. I mean, I had a client once who did sort of run out and change the laundry and unfortunately had an extraordinarily smart and able six-year-old who undid all the locks and got out and walked across the hall. Now, I think I think, in a neighborhood of privilege, that almost would have been met with some humor 
I was at a wedding this summer where that was the central story of the best man's speech about he, how he and his brother got out of the house when they were four and two years old because right. they wanted to walk down the street to see mom and dad at their friend's house for dinner. And in the Bronx, it was met with a child removal. I mean, that's the difference. And, and I, it is this generalized suspicion of the families in this community um, that I feel like is, doesn't exist in other scenarios. Switching gears to sort of think about the system here for a second, there, there's the rights of a family to stay together, yes. right, which is incredibly important. And then there's also, if you're an outsider and you are looking at this, there's the problem that you're creating, you know, sending kids to foster care is not an effective way to raise children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the damage that we're doing in the alternative. So there are, I I would want to say and be clear about the fact that there are many well-intentioned, loving foster parents who understand their role in the system, which is to provide a temporary and safe haven for children who need it. Um, And there are those foster parents, and I certainly applaud them, and they're wonderful (laughs) when you have them on your case. Um, when they're taking care of your client's children and they understand clearly their role in the case that they are temporary, this is not a system where you should come and look to adopt someone else's children. Um, this is a place where you should provide temporary loving caretaking to a child who needs you. Um, and alienating their parents is not helpful really in the short or long term. Study after study show that children who are removed from their parents, even though, even for the short term, do poorly on pretty much every measure of, um, of child health. So there was a really large study that was done about five years ago at MIT um, that looked at 15,000 families and compared children who grew up in homes with risk with adversity, with issues that would give everyone concern and pause, compared the children who stayed in those homes to the children who were removed as the result of similar, you know, analogous uh, situations. And in every measure, the children who stayed home did better. I mean, there's all these studies that show, you know, children who grow up in foster care are much more likely to, to face adverse life consequences like contact with the criminal legal system, poor educational outcomes, joblessness, homelessness. I mean, the list goes on. And again, that's not to say that there aren't well-intentioned foster parents. It's also not to say that there aren't some kids who do um, end up, unfortunately, having to grow up in foster care because there isn't another option with their family. But we should not look at foster care as any sort of panacea or any sort of way to address poverty, because it is in itself a very troubled system. Um, And I think what we need to realize is that putting the resources in the foster, like giving giving the foster family the resources that if you just gave to the family, that might help address the circumstances and consequences that gave rise to the neglect or the abuse allegation, maybe that's just a better use of our resources as a society. I mean, I do think that, unfortunately, it is true that if you swing at a mother, you hit the child. 
And so when you, when the specter of a child being abused is raised, in our society, we get so angry at the mother. We need to separate ourselves from her. We need to believe that she lacks humanity. It's, it's like we're sort of incapable of really trying to listen and hear her story. And so we quickly respond and we take our children away and give them to someone that we think will take care of them better. But in fact, you know, it's the child who can get hurt in that scenario and often does. Um, I think it's important to raise also that there are studies that show that children of color in foster care do particularly worse. So at every stage of a case, racial disparity grows. And there are studies that show that black children stay in foster care longer than white children. They're more likely to get inferior services when they're in foster care than white children. They are more likely to never be reunited with their parents, and they're less likely to ever be adopted. So there's, you know, Dorothy Roberts, who is a, a, a leading scholar on these issues and um, wrote an incredibly important book, um, The Color of Child Welfare, makes this point there that, you know, the racial disparity grows as you get deeper and deeper into the child welfare system, just like in the criminal legal system. That actually brings me to my next question perfectly because we've talked about racial disparities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, lo- I love the name for this sort of phenomenon, for lack of a better word, or series of injustices that's been popping up recently, which is Jane Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, which also highlights the gendered element of this. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about racism. I mm-hmm. wonder if you could talk about how you think sexism is playing mm-hmm. into this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting the vast majority of our clients are mothers. Um, I do think that the reality is we hold mothers primarily responsible for the care of their children. And in this world, fathers are pretty invisible, for better or for worse. They're not hauled into court and accused, but they also have very little power or rights when it comes to their children. So they might, you know, notice to them that their child is being adopted might be all that's required in a case. And so whereas you do have this real double standard where you see mothers being put on the hook and sometimes you want to say, hey, wait, you know, she didn't create this child by herself. Where are the, where, you know, if, if this case is about her not having enough clean school uniforms or being fed a big enough breakfast before she gets to school, if that's what this case is about, why is it all falling? Why are we laying all the blame at the mother's feet? Where's the father? And where's the child support? Where's that person? Um, But at the same time, fathers are completely discouraged from playing a role in their children's lives. I can't tell you how many times my client might be seriously unable to take care of her newborn. Maybe she is experiencing such severe symptoms of postpartum depression that she can't do it. Maybe she is, you know, there's no nothing magical about pregnancy that might stop a drug addiction if it's serious and she might have a serious drug addiction and need to get treatment. When I stand up and suggest the father, so the father was at the birth, he signed the birth certificate, he's ready, he's here. Often the response is, how's he gonna do it? Does he live with his mother? Is there a grandparent around? <laughs> They're uncomfortable releasing a newborn to the father in those circumstances. And I just imagine my own husband, you know, walking in after I gave birth, if I had been unable to care for one of my sons when he was born, the idea that he would be turned around, you know, turned away from his child or drug tested first 
or asked to do a parenting class first, that's, that's what happens. And often they'll say, well, it's not like, you know, I'll say there are no allegations against this parent. The state has no basis to interfere with his parental rights. He's the legal father. He signed the birth certificate. What are your grounds? And they'll come back and say, we're concerned. We're just concerned. It's hard to hide the sexism and the racism behind that statement. You know, concerns, that's not the legal standard. Those are your own personal views that you don't believe this man standing before you is capable of loving and nurturing a newborn. That comes from you. And that happens all the time in our cases. So I, I think there is sexism, but it doesn't look exactly like we might think of sexism looking in the workplace, right, yeah. against women advancing or being promoted. It's, a, it's, a, it's very insidious. It's not the only kind of sexism. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> you mentioned sort of at the beginning when we were talking about um, your client, it taking months for her to get her, her kids back. I wonder if we could talk about the process for a little, sure. for a little bit now. Yeah. Why don't we start off by you just describing family court? Sure. At least as it exists in the Bronx. Yeah. Do you mean the path of a family court or like what it's like, like once you're in there? Yeah, like what is what is walking in okay. a family court feel yeah. like? <laughs> so um, walking in Bronx family court feels a lot like walking in Bronx criminal court. Um, many of the judges are white. All of the respondents are of color. Um, they're black and brown mothers who have been brought there against their will. It is a very emotional place. Um, and many have been asked to appear there having had their children removed the night before and have not heard about where their children are. So it is a high, it, it's, a, it's hard to even articulate the crisis um, that is happening there and, and how emotional it can be. One thing that can happen on day one of a case is that a parent can invoke their right to a hearing to have their children returned. That hearing under the law in New York City is supposed to occur within three days. And it's also supposed to continue day to day to day until it's done. Why? Because it implicates the fundamental you know, right you have in raising your children. Mm -hmm. And we don't want a state interfering with that right unless um, that child has been shown to be an imminent um, risk of serious harm to life or health. You don't take a child just because you think something might happen. You don't take a child away from all they know and they love because you, you know, just it's a safer course. There has to be actual evidence that that child is at imminent risk. And is this the first time... So I, I think most people, upon hearing that someone's child is taken away, would think that there had been a big process on the front end to decide whether or not to take a, right. a kid away. So can you just talk about like what does sure. it actually look like when that decision is made? And is this hearing the first time that, that the sort of due process one might mm -hmm. expect is coming up? It can absolutely be the first time. Children can be removed without any judicial review of that decision. And so I'll explain a little bit about how that happens. A, when a call is made to the state central registry reporting that a child may be maltreated or is suspected of being maltreated, then it goes out to the local child protective agency, which, as we talked about in New York City, is ACS, or the Administration for Children's Services. They go out and conduct an investigation. If, in their discretion, they believe that the child is at imminent risk. They can remove right there. Every state gives Child Protective Services the power to remove if it's an emergency. But there's a big legal standard they should be meeting uh, when they do that. And a lot of the work that we do um, 
in collaboration with ACS is to talk about how those removals are conducted, how it's obviously always much better to go to court, but basically under the law, ACS can remove if they believe that this child is at imminent risk and there's no time to go to court. Yeah. Right? And how often does that happen? So in our view, it happens way too often. In our view, they could go to court. And oftentimes they have done that emergency removal, which is traumatizing in and of itself, as one could imagine. Then they file the petition against the parent. Then the parent appears in court. And then we're before the judge in the fir- for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we might invoke the right to a hearing to have the child returned. And often the child is returned, which suggests perhaps that the child should not have been removed in the first place or if a judge had reviewed and the parent had had an attorney and an advocate to advise them, this is the information you should share with the agency. This is what you should explain. Um, that maybe we would have avoided this incredibly traumatic thing, which I'm sorry, no child ever, ever, ever forgets. That digs a wound so deep, that does not heal. You're taken away from everything you know and love, brought to a processing center, sitting there alone, not sure where your parents are, not sure what's gonna happen, no one able to answer your questions, right? Because no one really knows what's gonna happen next until then you're brought to a foster home. There's a lot of effort, obviously, made on the part of the agency to make sure that the foster parents speak your language, etc. but that's not guaranteed. This is an emergency situation. Certainly things have gotten better in New York City over the last decade or so. I think, you know, we have fewer emergency removals. We've managed to get those down. That is largely because of the fact that we now have a strong parent defense bar in New York City that we are able to collect the stories of our clients and go to the agency and say, this is what's wrong with this policy. And in many circumstances, they've been accepting of that. And we've helped draft together policies so that caseworkers have more guidance in those situations. But it still happens. And it shouldn't happen even once, right? I mean, it is that traumatic, but it definitely still happens. So yes, you can have had your children removed before you've ever stepped foot in court. After your children are removed, you're asked to go to court, you appear in court, and that's the first time you also meet your lawyer. Um, And then you appear before the judge. And you have a right to a lawyer in these So in New York you do, but it is statutory. Mm -hmm. So can you just talk briefly about the differences in sort of rights guaranteed between, say, a criminal procedure and a family procedure. <laughs> I always forgot this this summer. It's like, oh, you don't have a right to a speedy, you don't have a constitutional right to a speedy trial in family court. They look very different. So I started my public interest career as a criminal defense attorney. And one of the most fundamental differences between those proceedings is that Even though, yes, you are the criminal defense attorney, you represent the accused, um, a role that I cherish and value very much, and your job is to stand up to the state and hold them accountable, everyone in the courtroom understood your role and valued your role. They might not like you very much, but they turned to you and asked for your position on things. When I went to family court as the parent's attorney, It was as if you had to learn how to interrupt people to be able to say something. If I didn't, no one ever turned to me and asked me my position, except maybe at the very end of a proceeding. And I always felt, what a waste. Because in this room, 
I'm actually standing next to the parent. I actually know more and have more that could be helpful to a good determination, to a right determination at the end of this hearing than maybe the child's attorney who hasn't yet had an opportunity to speak to their client and the agency attorney who only knows the views of the investigating caseworker. I actually represent a member of the family. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a grandmother available who can take care of the child and that foster care isn't necessary. I know that, in fact, although my client is being accused of not administering the correct ADHD medication, that my client changed doctors long ago and that there's a different prescription. And if they just let me speak, I could provide that information. It was incredibly frustrating. Um, and that is because really, you know, when we came in and started doing this work and started representing parents and asking for these hearings and asking for ACS to be held accountable for the decisions they were making and actually put on evidence and not just talk about their generalized concerns, it changed things. And, and whereas in the criminal court system, that was valued and understood as an important role, as the defense attorney have a, having a critical role, in the family court, that was the first thing that struck me. Was that why they really don't want us here? It would be much easier for them if it was just a potted plant standing next to this parent. And that was what we were determined not to have happen. That has created a lot of conflict because we ask for hearings and in some ways we've made things more difficult because we are asking the court to spend more time up front on these families. And that frustrates the court and our adversaries, frankly. Um, it's unfortunate because I think there's actually a lot of work we could be doing together that we're not. I think that we could get together and together make a compelling case that this court system needs many more resources. But unfortunately, like in most situations, when there are few resources going around, the people, the players turn against each other, blame each other, instead of actually looking for solutions together. Um, other major differences are that our proceedings are civil, even though what's at stake is arguably the most precious thing to our client, which are their children, right? If you ask someone, what do you care more about, your children or your liberty? Oftentimes, parents say, my children. In fact, usually they say that. But we have way fewer due process protections. Over the, so it's been 10 years? Yes. Over the last 10 years, um, what has been the sort of most unexpected part of your job or practice that has occupied your time? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I think that what I wasn't surprised by was how moving and emotional the work would be and how inspired I would be by my clients, that I'd had that experience in the criminal defense practice and that remained true um, when I became, you know, when I became a family defender. I became a mother as I built this practice and was very much inspired and moved and supported by um, many of the parents I represented. But I think that one unexpected life-changing thing um, that happened for me is having the privilege to work alongside some of the most passionate and motivated and creative advocates, you know, social workers, parent advocates, and attorneys every day. And it's hard to describe what it is like to work in our practice. It is very hard work. Um, our lawyers and our social workers and our parent advocates are asked every day to point out um, an injustice 
to stand in the way of a system that flows so quickly to what is easiest. Often our job is to stand up and say, no, wait, we have to look at this differently. We have to think about this differently. There are rights involved. There's a family involved. And you need to regard this family as importantly as you would your own. And as you can imagine, that's not always received um, positively. But I work alongside some of the bravest um, and most committed advocates who are really unwavering um, in their passion. And, and that has changed my life for sure. And definitely the best part of the job. This has been Wardier, Conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I want to just take a moment to remind you that the opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and my guests and do not reflect the opinions of the Criminal Justice Policy Program, Harvard Law School, or Harvard University. I also want to thank the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program, specifically Brooke Hopkins and Anna White for their help in creating this podcast. And I want to thank the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. Finally, I want to thank you for listening. 